Before we get started today, <laughs> um, I think it's good to, for us to look back on where we've been uh, for the last few weeks. So uh, I know we're just getting kicking off and ready for action, and you all seem to be all right, kind of, from your response a second ago. Uh, but if you could cast your minds back, uh, maybe four weeks for us to start. Let's get some context in. Let's build things in to the bigger picture. At Church Central here, uh, we're going through the, the, the Gospel of Luke, is what the book's called. It's one of the four autobiography, uh, not autobiographies, the four, four biographies of Jesus found in the New Testament, <laughs> and this one written by Luke, funnily enough. Um, and we've been going through a certain section, and I think this section that we're at really has been defined by a story that Jonathan preached on about four weeks ago that Jesus told, and it's found in Luke 12, uh, 16 to 21. Uh, just so you're aware, Jonathan, I'm not retreading old ground, just want to context and stuff like that. And so basically what happened is someone from the crowd, Jesus is teaching the crowds, people who probably didn't know uh, individually, and someone calls out a question to do with, I think, sharing uh, his money with his brother or something to do with money and his brother um, and then Jesus on, in that context told this story he said uh, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest so he thought to himself what shall I do I have no place to store my crops then he said ah this is what I'll do I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones and there I will store my surplus grain and I'll say to myself you have plenty of grain laid up for many years take life easy Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. So picture the scene, you've got the crowds there, Jesus tells uh, this story. Now, as often happens in the Gospels then, when Jesus goes away from the crowds, he goes, and it, uh, he goes and talks to his disciples, and he talks to them in a slightly different way. And so the next verse is, then Jesus said to his disciples, and it would seem that for the next part, and what we've been looking at, for the last uh, kind of two times we've been in Luke's gospel and today, is Jesus takes his disciples to one side and explains to them in more detail what this story uh, is really going on. Like he hones in on certain bits of it. Uh, I imagine there might well have been a question from his disciples that went away, wait a minute, Jesus, why did you call that guy in the story a fool? I thought he was quite sensible in how he handled his money. Can you explain that? And so Jesus goes into more details with his uh, disciples and he answers those, that question. And I think he gives two reasons why he's so harsh with this guy. Again, not, uh, if you want to catch more of this, the uh, last three talks on Luke are online and you can get them. But just to summarize, the, the two reasons, the one we've looked at a lot and the one we're going to look at today, one reason why this guy is a fool is because of his wrong attitude to his uh, earthly, worldly possessions, okay? Um, and we've looked at this in, in Luke 12, 22 to 34. Jesus encourages his disciples not to be like him in having a different attitude to possessions, not to be overly focused on them, not to worry about what we don't have. And actually, as we looked at last time, to focus more about what we have in Jesus, which is far more important than our bank balance or our wardrobe or our car or stuff like that. So that's one problem. We've looked at that, okay? However, that wasn't the only problem this rich fool, as he's called in the parable, had. He had a wrong attitude to his possessions, but also he wasn't ready for his death. That was also another problem that he had. So we see it uh, in his attitude. He says, uh, he says to himself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink and be merry. Actually, part of this guy's foolishness came from the fact that this is a completely unwarranted presumption that this guy has. In reality, in the story, he wasn't 
He wasn't entitled to presume he had all those years because that very evening his life would be demanded from him. In other words, he was going to die. Okay? Now, today I want to look at the second half of Jesus' commentary then on this parable. And it's going to be, if you've got a Bible, it's in Luke 12, 35 to 48, following on from what we've looked at about worry in the last couple of times. And uh, I think what Jesus wants to do here is unpack this whole idea of being ready a little bit more. And he wants us to shake us out of the same sort of complacency that this guy had that made Jesus call him a fool. Okay, so Luke 12, 35 to 48 will appear behind me. I'm reading from the NIV. This is what Jesus says. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or towards daybreak. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. So the problem with the rich fool to one degree, was that he wasn't ready and Jesus didn't want his disciples to have the same problem. And the word uh, be ready, those two words, the summary, I think, of this whole passage. It's not a short passage. And I think it's good, before we go any further, to get in our heads the structure of it because it's quite simple in some ways. But it's this word ready that comes up again and again. Verse 35, verse 40, verse 47. The headline right at the beginning, be dressed ready for service. We need to be ready. And uh, then from that point, Uh, Jesus uses three illustrations to drive this point home. He says, be ready like these three people are ready. Firstly, be ready like a servant waiting for his master to come home from a party. It's the first image of readiness here. Secondly, be ready like a homeowner whose house is under the threat of burglary. It's the second one. And thirdly, back to uh, the servant, uh, a servant picture again, but it's like a different servant. Be ready like a servant who's been given the job of looking after the other servants while his master's away. So those are our three images. We've got the be ready. We've got like these people. And that's really uh, what the passage is here. And so I'd like to ask two questions of this passage. What are we supposed to be ready for? For exactly, let's go into some detail on that. That's important. And secondly, then, how do we get ourselves ready? Maybe the emphasis on the second question, possibly. But let's start with the first one. If we're meant to be ready, what are we meant to be ready for? Ready for what? Okay. And we see this in verse forty. 
I think most clearly, although this strikes a chord throughout the passage, Jesus says, you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. What does this mean? Well, this is really a reference to Jesus' return. That's what Jesus is talking about here. The Son of Man being Jesus, he'll come at an hour when you don't expect him. That is for when Jesus will return. Now, Jesus taught very clearly and um, on many occasions through his life that after he died and rose again and ascended to heaven, he would come back. He would return. And Jesus' followers pick this up in almost all the books uh, of the New Testament. And uh, when he would return, you might think, well, that sounds like a nice idea, Jesus back, that would be good. Well, what's he coming to do? One of the key things he was coming to do is to judge the world. That's one of the key uh, things Jesus is returning to do. So, for example, uh, Matthew 25, 31 to 32, even uses exactly the same uh, image of Jesus here. Jesus uh, says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left he's coming to judge uh, people that's what he's coming to do now many people and maybe some of you here think uh, that Christianity really shouldn't talk about judgment this is a no-go area really that's been dwelt on far too much in the past and is depressing and scaremongering and just uh, it just needs to be left alone. And even now, it could be that you've come, come to church today and you don't normally come to church you think, oh, great, you told my friend, told me it's going to be a nice service, a happy song, and judgment comes up in the sermon. Fantastic. How can I leave without making too much of a, a fuss? But the Bible does talk about judgment. It talks about it quite a bit, actually. And if we're going to go through the Bible, we're going to come up against it every now and again, I suppose. However, more than that, although you might still think that doesn't uh, kind of get you out of your wanting to leave scenario, I'd say something even more provocative than that and would like you to hear me out on it. It is actually, we would like there to be a judgment. I think the idea of judgment, is, in, our, uh, in our kind of most base feelings, is an attractive idea to us. And I need to back up that idea because that might not be what you think. So let's uh, tell you what I mean. And I was a RE teacher, or RS teacher, whatever you call it, uh, or did call it then, uh, for a number of years. And uh, we had a situation at GCSE, so years 10 and 11, 15 and 16 year olds, where every pupil had to sit an hour of RS a week. That is legislation in the government decided for RS that's the case. Everyone must do some religious education uh, for an hour a week. And so therefore we had two kinds of classes in Key Stage 4 for Year 10 and Year 11. Uh, and those would be the exam kids, which were the vast majority. And then you'd have these classes called non-entry classes. And the idea would be this, is that uh, these ki- kids in the non-entry class, for one reason or another, may be kind of just totally disaffected, maybe not likely... Not, to do that well in an exam, um, we just didn't enter them for any exam. So really the idea would be they'd come to us for an hour a week, we had to have them, but it was kind of glorified babysitting, really. We would um, look at things that were kind of interesting or thought-provoking and loosely related to RE. It might be some videos, some songs, something about prejudice or attitude to drugs or something like that, something interesting kind of about being a good citizen or something. But they, they wouldn't have to do a whole lot of work. There was no homework really given and really, uh, and there was no assessment at the end of it. Now, after a while, we, we decided to change this strategy in our department. Don't, don't worry if you think I'm going to the inner workings of a school. What's this? You'll, you'll see where I'm going in a second, I, I think. Um, and we changed it. And the reason we changed it was this, is because those students, even though they had very little work to do and tended to do things that you'd have thought were quite fun, um, 
They were misbehaving. Uh, They were hating the lessons. And the reason was very simple. They understood very clearly that there was no assessment at the end. And therefore, that hour a week was completely pointless. It was completely meaningless. That was, that was the take that they'd have. They'd often say, oh, I don't want to be a vicar, sir. So why do I have to be here? <laughs> and they did not, not want to be a vicar. There was never going to be an assessment of them at the end. So what we did, we changed things. And we decided to enter everybody for RS GCSE. We were reluctant. We thought, are oh, we just dragging them through something they don't want to do? And amazingly, to our, to our surprise, we found the behavior improved. The kids enjoyed lessons more. And even some of the kids who we used to not enter ended up passing exams. Wow, this is crazy. <laughs> and what it was was this. The, the change was simple. They realized, actually, there was a reason for being there. There was a purpose to those lessons. And that switched them on in a way that <laughs> 100 Simpsons episodes didn't quite do. Okay. <laughs> now, I think in life, we often recognize times like this that we want to be judged for what we've done. We do want it. And then I think surely the fact then, when we recognize that, that the fact that our whole lives will undergo a similar assessment should be to a degree comforting to us. What it means is the fact there's a judgment, it means our choices actually matter, that we have a meaning, that we have a purpose. Now, of course, a judgment opens up the possibility that we might fail that judgment. That is true, and that's in, in the nature of judgment, I suppose. But it also opens up the possibility of being successful in your life and getting rewarded. If, on the other hand, there was no judgment, in a sense, we would all fail because everything would be pointless. Whether we eat, drink, and be merry, and, or show kindness to everyone, or actually whether we live cruel and vindictive lives and die penniless, it doesn't really matter. One day we will die. Maybe a generation or two might remember us for a bit, but very soon no one will remember us, and we won't care because we'll be dead. And so to a degree, what's the point of anything? So just like then, if we had an upcoming exam, probably not so relevant for this site recently, but I know the students at the South site, if they're they're still around, will be like, yes, I remember this feeling. If we have an upcoming exam, we need to be ready. We need to get ourselves ready for it. Well, the same is true of this. We need to be prepared in our lives for that assessment, for that judgment that's coming. So like with an exam, often, if anyone remembers back today, you do want to know what day it's on. You kind of scour. It's on May the 25th or something. Can we say when this is going to happen. To get us ready, a date is sometimes helpful, or at least a rough indication. Well, can we get any clues uh, for this? Now, before you think I might start going off on the the kind of more speculative route that we have seen a number of times in past, it's on this day, everyone hide in a bunker or something, build up your tins of baked beans. I don't know what they do. But uh, (laughs) there's there's all those people throughout history, isn't there, who've predicted the coming of Jesus. Now, I'm not going to do that, just so you know. Cool. That's good. Um, I don't think we need even to go down a route similar to that. Though. I don't think we need to speculate on the kind of exact date or time when Jesus will return because actually we can speak with much more certainty about this sort of thing because there's an event coming uh, that I can guarantee you will happen in your lifetime that in a sense is going to bring this in. I say happen in your lifetime. I mean bring an end to your lifetime really. And that event is the only certainty in life uh, which is that we will die. Each of us will die. Hopefully in a long time but it will happen. The writer of the Hebrews uh, links these two ideas together when he says in Hebrews 9.27 people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Now as far as I can see 
uh, the Bible isn't 100% clear on what happens in that period between when we die and Jesus comes again. It could be we consciously wait in some sort of uh, heavenly waiting room sort of idea, kind of. I'd probably verge more towards the idea that would say it's like falling asleep and then waking up so you kind of die and then you're suddenly zoomed to judgment. You know, like you say to, if you've got kids, you say, if you go to sleep quicker, Christmas will come quicker. Similar sort of idea, uh, I, I guess. It could be that, I don't think the Bible's entirely clear one way or another, but whichever way you look at it, we'll all, we're all going to meet Jesus soon. We're going to meet him soon, whether he returns before we die or after we die. And uh, in reality, for most of us, let's face it, we're not ready for either eventuality. I know that I don't often consider, right, I've got my, I'm ready for this. No, we're not ready for either of these things. And I, I guess when you think about it, it is kind of bizarre that the only thing we know for absolutely sure that will happen is the one thing that we try to imagine away the most and sometimes refuse to prepare for unless we absolutely have to. I think Jesus is fully aware of this in this passage and he shows it, uh, his awareness of it, in the second illustration that he uses. This illustration of the kind of homeowner who's not waiting to be burgled, but does get burgled. And what he's saying is this, look, most of you guys, you're, you're as ready to die as a complacent homeowner is ready to be burgled. Nobody says, when the police come and say, okay, let's take a, let's see if there's a fingerprint, like that. no one goes, yeah, I was ready for this, knew exactly when it was going to happen. No, nobody's ready to be burgled. Jesus is absolutely correct here. It's always a surprise. Well, we're as ready to die as a complacent homeowner is ready to be burgled. But Jesus' point is this, we must shake off that complacency and face up to the reality of the situation. We don't really want to hear it, but this is the situation. Our lives will end, hopefully in a very long time. But actually, you can bet whenever it will happen, it will be sooner than you expected. We need to be ready. So that's what we need to be ready for. The question then, I suppose, that follows from that is, how can we get ourselves ready for that day? We'll spend the rest of our time on that question. Now, if you're in the movies, there's a simple way to, to uh, approach death, and it's called The Bucket List. Has anyone seen that film, The Bucket List? Okay. I haven't and have no desire to watch it. Uh, but uh, you guys, I'm sure you enjoyed it. But you'll know, you'll know the deal uh, uh, here. And it appears every now and again in other things as well. And it's basically the list of things you want to do before you kick the bucket. And uh, what happens is if in a film someone finds out they're going to die sometime kind of imminently, uh, they attend to their bucket list. Might be bucket list. It might be swimming with dolphins, climbing Mount Everest, meeting the Queen. It's like tick, tick, tick. I have completed my bucket list. I'm ready to die, that sort of thing. Well, Jesus does not go down the bucket list route here. It's not like kind of, you need to be ready. Okay, here, tick, 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 do this stuff. Now, we'd expect that. What he doesn't do as well, which is maybe less expected, is he doesn't do the reverse bucket list that Christians often do, which is not the things that we want to do before we die, but the things we want to make sure we definitely haven't done before we die. Like, I don't want to have nicked anything or robbed the bank or killed anybody because that will be very bad on that day, so therefore I'm not going to do those things. No, he, he doesn't do that either. In fact, Jesus' focus here is not about individual actions making us ready for, for our death and for judgment, but actually it's more of a state of mind he encourages his disciples to be in and to have to ready themselves for that day and in verse 35 the very first verse I think sums this up so clearly for us he says this right at the start he goes I don't want you to be complacent I don't want you to be like that rich fool what do you need to do be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning doesn't sound like good health and safety but you know this is what Jesus says keep those lamps burning now I think 
this is a really vivid and helpful picture for us of the state of mind we should have to be ready. Uh, but it probably needs a little bit of unpacking because culturally it's a little bit distant to us, I guess. Now, in those days, if you had some money, you could hire servants, and you would hire servants. And uh, the servants would have a whole number of different tasks, but one of them may well be, as Jesus points out, to welcome you home as the master when you come home uh, from a long trip, on this occasion from a party or something like that. Now, some of this stuff, again, we've got to kind of not pass judgment here on an older culture because we're not in their culture. Their culture is a very different culture and one element of this certainly would have been the kind of honouring the master kind of idea, the, the rolling out the red carpet sort of thing. And in their culture, kind of very much an honour-shame sort of culture, that was important. That would be an important role of the servants staying up to honour the master when they return. But there would be more practical reasons for the servants' readiness as well that we might probably be able to understand more fully. Now think about it. This is a time with no electricity at all. There's no, particularly no lighting. So if you were to come back from anything in, the, in night time, you would, uh, it would, could be potentially hazardous even getting to your front door, let alone up the stairs to bed, whatever you wanted to do. So it would be incredibly handy to have someone there on hand, awake if preferable, and with their light lamp burning to show you in, show you where you're going, and light the house for you. Now, obviously, also, you might feel a little thirsty, bit hungry, might want some food or drink when you got in. And so that person would need to be ready for action, just in case you never know what you could need when you come in. Maybe something even more serious. Now, in those days, apparently, what the general male attire was a long flowing robe. Now, obviously, it's the same nowadays. I've left my mind dry cleaners, but you know. They had a long flowing robe that they would wear. And uh, when people were at leisure, it would kind of flow loose and kind of, uh, I suppose it wouldn't be particularly, I mean, ladies, you could probably identify this. It's not, if you had a long dress on, it's not so easy to go around fast. I suppose you don't run in the dress. Do you run in the dress? No, not really. No, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, um, so but for the men, similarly, when they were at leisure and didn't have a whole lot to do, the, the robe would be flowing and loose. Yet, if you wanted to do something, you wouldn't change clothes. You'd just tie the robe up. That would be uh, the sort of idea. If you wanted to be active, particularly for work. And uh, if the servants' robes were not tied up, if they were loose, they really wouldn't be any help when the master comes back. If he needs, look, I need this now. And they go, oh, wait a minute, uh, quick, I'll do this. I don't know what, they, a peg. They probably wouldn't use a peg, maybe a little clever knot. But anyway, it would take a while. They wouldn't be quite ready to go. Now, basically then, the encouragement to be dressed and ready for service here and keep your lamps burning is an encouragement to do one thing. It's an encouragement for servants to remember who they are and that they've got a job to do. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, be dressed and ready for service. Keep those lamps burning. He's saying, remember, you're a servant, and you've got a job you need to do. That's what you need to do to be ready. We prepare ourselves for our master's return by remembering that we're his servants with a task at hand. Now, I can think, having said that, and that being reasonably straightforward, I can think of at least two groups of people who might have a problem with that idea. Well, how do I prepare for death? How do I prepare for judgment? I remember at the top of my mind, I remember, I am a servant of God with a task to achieve, to perform. And the first group of people who might have an issue with that would be maybe some of you here, if you're not a Christian, and you might, your point might be, you, you might not be totally sold on the idea of there being a God at all, but you might think, well, if there's a God, surely he doesn't want us just to serve him. Sounds a little bit Victorian, doesn't it? Or, or narcissistic. How, why would he want to do that? I mean, in an age of equality like the one in which we live, in any talk of sort of masters and servants can seem completely inappropriate. 
And actually, whenever anyone claims any degree of authority over us, instantly we'll say, why? We want to know why you've got that authority. Where did you get it from? Are you going to carry it out fairly? Is it going to be in our best interest? We're suspicious of those sort of things. But I'd argue that when it comes to God, such an image is wholly appropriate. Totally right. In fact, no other image would work uh, for us, uh, just naturally speaking, in that sort of sense. And I think for two reasons. The first is most important. And it's very simple. Why should we, is it, is it fine for God to say, yeah, I expect you to serve me? Well, it's because he made us. I think that's, that's number one. That's kind of the flashing one that kind of strikes me on this and is constantly referred to throughout Scripture. He has authority over us because he made us. I think we see a, a shadow of this in what we just implicitly assume of children with their parents. I often use this line with uh, Isaiah and Hope. I will with Rex, I'm sure. After a thousand whys, eventually you say, why? Do you want to know why you should do what I say? Because I told you. That's why. Because I told you. Right off you go. Now, I don't like to resort to that too early. It's a little bit dictatorial. But at the end of the day, actually, the real reason why they should do it is because I told them. Because we assume, yeah, of course, a, a father has authority over his children. That can be used wrongly. It could be overdone. But it's just there. It's what happens. Why? Because the, the parents are those that have, have, have nurtured that child, have brought them into the world. And that comes with authority and responsibility. Now, if that's the case with parents, surely it's even more the case with God, who didn't just incubate us, look after us for a few years. Now, God actually designed us. He crafted each one of us, and he assigned us the incredible privilege of being able to live. God made us, so surely he has authority over us, so we should obey him and actually be servants of him as our Lord, as our master. And actually, on its own, that would be enough. God doesn't need to make any promises about how he will conduct his authority. Just the fact he made us is the case. There is no Geneva Convention that he would need to answer to about how he rules. He could treat us how he wanted. It's essentially, you say jump, I say jump, you say how high. That's, that's because we're created beings, we've got to understand we are in that situation, whether we like it or not. But there is another reason why serving God is utterly appropriate, and it's, it's an incredible blessing. We take it massively for granted, but it comes from God's very character itself. Because God not just made us, God is totally good. The excellent news of the Bible is, is not just that God's in charge, but that he carries out his rule justly and fairly always because he's entirely just, entirely fair, and entirely good. One of my, you want to know about God? One of my favorite verses about God in the Bible is Psalm 89, verse 14. It says this, it says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. So great image. God rules. He has authority. We're to serve him. Well, what's his rule like? Is it harsh and, 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 and arbitrary? Uh, does he take bribes? No, no, no. The foundation of his throne, his rule, is righteousness, always doing things right, and justice. Now, you might think, well, he's not corrupt, but it's still not a very warm image, is it? Justice. He's just just. It's kind of cold. Well, how does that work itself out to us? Well, the verse continues. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. You want to know how God's righteousness in his rule is applied? What flows from his throne of righteousness and justice? Well, it's love and it's faithfulness. And we see the full extent of his love Maybe in one of the most famous verses in the whole Bible. It's not just a concept. He made that very real and clear to us how much he loves us. 
how much of that love flows from his throne. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he so loved us that he gave his only son. Well, we could say lots about what does it mean for Jesus to be God's son? Surely one of the things it means is you, you understand the depth of someone's love when you see what they'll give for that person. And there is nothing more precious than someone's only child. Nothing. He gave his only son. He gave what was most precious. He gave his son to come and rescue us. That demonstrates a depth of feeling that goes beyond anything we could have asked of anyone, let alone our creator. I'd say to serve such a master would not be a chore or a sentence. That's a joy. It's a mighty joy. If you're not a Christian here, Please listen to this. Jesus wouldn't want you to perish like the rich fool, living for things that don't matter, and at the end being called to account for your life. God asking, how did you serve me? That's why you were here. How did you do? And you just look blankly and go, I didn't even know I was here for a reason. I had no idea. No, he doesn't want that to happen. I don't know when you'll die. I hope it's a very long way off. But we need to get ourselves ready for that day now. It's vital, it's important. The Bible actually has has lots to say on practically how to do that. But for the moment, all I'd simply say is this. Why don't you look seriously into how to serve God? You put this high on your agenda. How do you serve the one who made you? Talk to friends from church that you've come with. Maybe make some new friends in church and talk to them. Maybe grab some of the leaders at the end of the meeting. Uh, I won't be here at the end of the meeting, I'll be driving around Birmingham like a headless chicken. No, no, I mean driving sensibly around Birmingham following my sat-nav according to speed limit. Um, but grab, grab Russ or grab uh, um, Aidy or someone who's on the site team and talk to them about this stuff. You know, as a church, Church Central wants to be a group of people that serve God with all our heart and soul. And when we gather together, we look every week at God's instructions in his book, the Bible, on how to most effectively do that. So why don't you just keep coming along on a Sunday morning and find out what the Bible has to say on that matter. Because the Bible is more specific. I'm just saying, why don't you put it on your horizon? Why don't you make this a serious thing for you? Because I just want to flag it up as something important. Because Jesus said that the only way to be ready to meet your Creator is to be ready to live a life of service to Him now. However, I don't think it's just people who aren't Christians who might have a problem with being constantly ready to serve. It might well be some who are Christians. It might even be some who aren't just Christians, but part of this church, who are sitting right before me. Not even that. It may be some of you who've every week made it your priority to come and listen to sermon after sermon on Luke's gospel. And you've taken it all in. in, And suddenly you come in and think, there's a grating gear change going on here. This is not what I've been hearing for the last few weeks. Because you see, as Christians... And as those who've now know Luke's gospel off by heart, we'll know that there is another identity uh, in relation to God that we have. And often in our minds, it can sometimes stand against in opposition to this image of us as servants. And this is that we are children of God. That's primarily what we are. We're God's children. What, children? Servants? Well, which one is that? They're very different things. And we are children. Just to clarify on this, we're not, it's not suddenly change of theology. Oh dear, Jonathan's back from Mexico a bit early. I meant to sneak this in before. But anyway, no, it's, it's nothing like that. This is exactly what we said. We're children. As Christians, we discover the incredible fact that God doesn't sign us onto his labor force, actually, when we become Christians. No, he adopts us into his family. 
It's the, it's the most revolutionary thing that Jesus modeled in his life and it, uh, he taught. And it's probably the main distinctive of the Christian faith, actually. Jesus related to God as his father and he encouraged all his followers, alive then and alive now, to do exactly the same. Some of his first followers, they understood this straight away. Paul puts this in Romans 8.15, You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. Like a kind of worker carrying the corner. Will my boss still like me? I've kind of messed this one up. No, you didn't receive that sort of spirit, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. You are my Father. That's what we cry. That's what it is to be a Christian. In our recent uh, series on prayer, we reveled in this. How do we come to talk to God? To becoming dust and ashes. Oh, I'm not worthy. No, we don't. We come, our Father. That's how we address him. We come to God knowing we're accepted because of who we are, his children, not because of what we've done, not because of our performance. It's incredibly liberating. And actually, without it, Christianity would be just another religion urging us to earn God's approval through good performance, through good works. Now, with that banked, with that said, not going back on that, how then can Jesus now tell us that we should live each moment aware of our position as his servants? I mean, how? How does he do that? How does he put those things together? Surely, on the basis of what we've seen in the last few weeks, we should get ready for Jesus returning by getting comfy on the sofa and raiding the fridge. Because dad's coming back. Woo! Dad's coming back. I'll give him a Chinese burn or put him in a headlock. That's what we do with our dads. Isn't that how we get ready? Is that what you do with your dad? No. <laughs> I keep embarrassing Nathan. You've come to that age, I can embarrass you without feeling bad. I do feel a bit bad, though. Anyway, <laughs> um, actually, our position as God's uh, children does not negate our role as servants. We've got to understand this. The two things go together, they do not oppose. And if you're thinking, oh, I can't put it together, I was working my head. It's very simple. And this is usually the case with things we can't put together. We don't need to put every bit together in our heads so much. We need to look at Jesus because Jesus models this absolutely perfectly. Is he a son? Is he a servant? Is he a son? Is he a servant? Yes and yes. Just think about this for a a second. In Luke 3.22, Jesus obviously lived 30 years or so up to this point. But according to Luke, he's done virtually nothing. This is the introduction to his adult life. Jesus has not preached any public sermons. He's not uh, raised the dead. He's not done any miracles. He's not even resisted temptation of the devil in the wilderness. Okay? According, uh, that's how Luke presents it. He gets baptized. What are the words from heaven to him? Are they, well, you're ready. Now, you better do a good job. Okay? We'll have your appraisal in a year. Is that what the word from heaven comes? No, it's not at all. This is the words. You're my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. That's at the beginning. That's before anything else happens. Be aware of this. If you are a Christian, irrespective of what you do or don't do, before you've ever prayed a prayer or read a Bible verse or attended a church meeting or resisted a temptation, he loved you. He loved you. Just like Jesus. He's like our older brother. We, we were chosen so that he could be the firstborn among many brothers. Now He loves us just like he loved Jesus. Simply because the minute you believed in Jesus, you became his child. That's the basis. And Jesus models it. So he starts, I'm a son. That's what I am. So what does he do? Does he, does he mill through life thinking, hey, privilege. I'm a child of privilege. I can do what I like. I might in a few years I'll go to Africa and help a few people, you know, like kind of celebrities. But generally, I'm going to sit back and have some fun. I'm going to get in a hot tub. It's going to be great. 
Is that how he, how he operates here? No, not at all. Luke 4, 43, just a chapter later. Jesus has gone straight at it. He's at work. And a crowd of people like what they see, and they say, Jesus, stick around with us for a while. We like you. You can be on our team. Jesus says this. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. Wait a minute. It's not why you were sent. You're a son. You can do what you want. No, no, no. Jesus knew very clearly he was sent for a reason. He had a job to do. He had a task to complete. That's how he lived. If you look at Jesus' life, in Luke, I've been struck by this so much. The purposefulness of Jesus' life. No, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that because I've been given a mission. But you're a son. I don't talk about missions and stuff. No, I'm a son. Of course I'm a son. I'm a servant. I've been given a mission. I'll sneak in the word servant there. Because we see that part of his job was to be a servant. Philippians 2, 7 to 8, Paul writes about Jesus. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Obedience to the Father was paramount. This is why I'm here, to obey him. I'm serving them, I'm serving my Father. I'm submitting to his will. Jesus did not have a problem with being a son and a servant. And neither did his followers either. So Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, he would have heard this stuff. He would have seen how Jesus related to his father. He would have been there when Jesus first said, well, this is how you pray. You want to know how to pray? Our father. How does Peter introduce himself to Peter? 1 verse 1. Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Well, Peter, you're a son. Yeah, of course I'm a son, I don't know, a servant of Jesus Christ. That's how I am, that's how I, I labor myself. Paul does exactly the same in Romans 1 verse 1. If you struggle with this, think about your experience. Think about how you became a Christian. When you came to God, on that day, if you can remember the day, how did you come to him? What did you come to him as? I certainly hope that you came to him as Lord if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, what does that mean? Well, you, you'll be saved. And what does it mean to come to him as Lord? Well, it means you bow to his authority. We got to a point where we said, look, I cannot run this show myself. I'm not, I'm not good enough to be able to, to lead this life the way it needs to be lived. So I'm going to give it to you, Lord, my master. It's not, it, the, even as I say that word, something in my 21st century Western mindset cringes, master. Oh, it's a horrible word. I prefer Lord because I don't like to think that it means master. But that's what it means when we came to Jesus. Jesus is Lord. You're my master. I'll give it all to you. I'll do anything for you because I know I can't do it myself. That's what happened when we became a Christian. And therefore, when we suddenly found out that we were a son or a daughter, it was a massive surprise. We might have heard it before. We might have knew that was going to happen. But when we first experienced it, we experienced that, that answer to prayer or that blessing that just came out of the blue. And we thought, no, what? I said, you can have all. I said, send me, Lord. I'm your servant. And suddenly he's treating me as a child. Well, it was an incredible added blessing. It wasn't what we signed up for. It's as if we came into his house to sign up for work as his servant. And down on our knees, scraping before him, we heard the master's voice saying, come on up you get. Do you want me to show you how serving in this house looks? I'll show you. And he handed us the adoption papers, fully signed. He said, look, you're not just some hired help here. Be clear on that. You're my child now. There's no upstairs, downstairs in this house, for those of you of a certain age. 
There's no standing on ceremony or airs and graces here. The whole house is yours. All I have is yours, including my unconditional love. That's what it's like to serve me. But what he didn't say is, so don't worry about being a servant. Just chill out because you're my son. No, he didn't say that. Listen, being God's son does not mean we loosen our robes, snuff out our lamp and go and lounge on the sofa. We're here to serve him. It's right, it's fitting, it's appropriate. It's amazing how he treats his servants. But we've always got to remember who we're dealing with here. This is God. This is the one who made us, who bought us, who is altogether good, altogether loving, altogether mighty. The God whose kingdom will come and whose will will be done. He's not, hey, dad, dead arm, ha ha. No, he's God. Listen, he brings us incredibly close to him. He does, and he loves us with incredible force. But actually, the closer we come to him and the more of his love we experience, the more we say, I'm here to serve you. I want to serve you more. I've got my robes tied up. I've got my lamp burning. I'm alive every minute for you, Lord. I'm listening to your voice, and I'm ready for action because I'm your servant. I'm ready for action. I'm ready for that day. I, look, I know that for many of uh, you guys, your struggle maybe in the balance I'm talking about here is still on the side of sonship. That still you struggle to understand how could I be a, a son or daughter of God? How could that be? And that's your struggle daily maybe. I want to say to you again, look, you are his child. It's not being tempered here. You really are. Lap it in again. Hear it again. We need to hear it all the time. Because we know we're not worthy for that. However, I'd say on the other side, there are definitely some of us and probably all of us at one moment or another, when we get the balance wrong in the other direction, when we start thinking, because of his great love for us, he doesn't care if we live aimlessly. Just do whatever we want. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Oh, wait a minute. That reminds me of something in the passage. No, that's not what we're meant to be doing. And actually, if we persist to do that, Jesus would say to us, our daddy in heaven would say to us, you fool. You fool. Tie your robe up, put your lamp back on, be ready to serve, because that's why you're alive. You know what, if I wanted, I could go into more detail on the passage, because the passage takes up a whole other level. You want to read uh, verse 46 and try to see what that means in this context of it, I'd encourage you to do that, because Jesus is deadly serious here. All I'll say now is, this is a serious business. It's not just, I mean, phew, great, I don't have to do anything. Let's, one day I might kind of help a bit more or be there. No, no, no. It's serious we live our lives as servants, constantly ready to serve our Lord Jesus. And we must heed his instruction here whether we recount ourselves as Christians or not. I cannot put that more strongly than Jesus put it in this passage. So as we finish then, as we apply... Uh, often what we do in applications is go into detail and go, well, how? What specific things can I do? And you could do this from this passage, I guess. There's, there's some detail here. Um, however, I want to leave us bigger picture here. I think this is a bigger picture passage. I, I simply want to present you these three images um, that we've got. Which, uh, Sorry, Tom, could you go on the next slide? Because they're three images, but they're slightly different from the three images I've got up there, actually, <laughs> which is slightly confusing, but oh well. Um, there are three examples that we've seen attended to in the... Um, Sorry, Tom, is the next one on? Can you just remove those three? 
Or just, yeah, that's it. That's all I need. Cool, that's fine. Um, the three examples we've seen today, there are lots of different three examples. These are the ones I want to focus you in, in your mind right at the end. Is we've seen three people. We've seen a rich man. His motto was, take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. I want to ask you, is that you? If someone was to say, look at your life, say, which of these three, what do you look like? Is that you? Eat, take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. That's one. The second is a servant who forgets that he even has a job to do. Oh, am I a servant? Really? Oh, okay. Well, I better time robe up and do something. Oh, he's gone. Oh, dear. There's a servant who forgets that he even has a job to do. That's the second one. And the third one is a servant who keeps on his servant clothes, keeps his lamp burning, and lives in a constant state of resiness to serve his master. Can I ask you, honestly, God knows already, so there's no point beating around the bush, which one are you most like at the moment? If it's the third one, I'd encourage you to be encouraged. Verse 37 says this, It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. It will be good for you. You might think, I don't get a lot of credit for this. I'm servant-hearted. I try to be a bee. I try to be on my toes for my Lord. I want to listen to him. I want to go for it. Don't get much credit. Well, I tell you, you might not get a lot of credit in this life. You might not do. But you know what? When you see him, it will be very, very good for you. Take heart, keep being obedient, keep listening to his voice, keep taking steps of faith, keep on with the mission he's given you. But if actually it's the other two, please recognize this. Although this sounds harsh, and there's harshness in this passage, the fact that you're hearing this today is an act of grace from your gracious father. If when you look at your life, and the decisions you're making, and uh, the direction you're heading... You've got to admit, actually, yeah, you don't look like a servant actively serving his master, but more like someone simply taking it easy, or maybe even like the second servant, serving yourself. God is saying, look, I've put you here, I've got this talk for you, I've put this in my gospel for you. Come back to your loving master. Say sorry and know his forgiveness. And then he'll forgive you, just be clear on that. Forgiveness is not in doubt here, you'll be forgiven. But then tie the servant's robe back up, Put your lamp back on and pay attention again to what your master tells you to do while you're alive in the first place. And please be ready.